on the First Empire podcast of 2013. It's nom 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 time as we talk about the Oscars, we review Gangster Squad and Les Miserables and have a whale of a time with guests Tom Hooper and Toby Jones. Happy freaking New Year, everyone. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and after a three-week hiatus, is that a technical Sure, term? yes. Three weeks I hiatus? So. Yeah, okay. Uh, you're more than welcome to the Empire podcast. The only movie podcast that started ranting nonsensically at Piers Morgan long before it was fashionable. A wise man once said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Another wise man once said, if it's completely and utterly wrecked beyond repair, then don't even bother with... One of those two phrases in mind, I'm delighted to welcome our regular roster of top Empire pod bods, starting with Queen Geek herself, Helen O'Hara. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What did you spend your Christmas holidays doing? Um, sitting around eating and watching movies. Oh, anything good? No, I watched a lot of bad movies, like Son of the Mask was on one day, and I thought, well, I never actually watched this at the time to see exactly how bad it was, so let's, let's have a gander. And uh, it really was as bad as you've heard. So not, I learned that. Not the best film featuring Loki uh, that you saw in 2012. Not the best film featuring Loki that I saw, no. Uh, not the best Loki that I saw, with all respect to Alan Cumming. You know, <laughs> not great. Next up is our art house aficionado, Phil DeSimlian, a man who makes introductions like this a doddle. Yes. Yes, you do. they're the same one every week. <laughs> no, it's not, Phil. You're the kind of guy who, oh, yeah. and I'm not kidding, Yeah. you made your parents sit down on Christmas Day, uh, sorry, Christmas Eve, he made them watch, Rainer Werner Fassbinders, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. <laughs> now, when most people are watching White Christmas or Die Hard or It's a Wonderful Life, Phil was going for a bit of bleak German existentialism. Mm. Explain yourself. <laughs> I do write my own scripts. You are Let's clarify panic. one thing. <laughs> They're reducing me to say it's a cliche. My parents did not watch. I didn't make anyone watch this film. I got confused because last year we were talking about it, and you were saying you were making a funny about Fastbender and Fastbinder. Yeah, and I didn't really know who they were, so I had to go and do some research. And this was research. There you go. I'm backpedaling. <laughs> no, I, all right. I did watch that film. Was this a, it's a bit like Bad Santa? But without the comedy. With less anal. <laughs> and with more gin. James, I didn't know you were going on a podcast today, so I didn't write anything for you, but it's James Dyer. Hi. Like, there he is. Yeah. Resplendent, looking she- like the guy from the lives of others with the bald head. And it's the, true. And the, with the headphones, headphones on, I do do that. You do indeed. Yeah. Uh, how was your Christmas? It was all right. Brilliant. Uh, with that out of the way, <laughs> we're going to change the formula of the podcast up just a bit, and maybe just for this week. If you're a new listener to the show, this is normally the bit where we discuss the questions and comments that you guys send in during the week. But you may have noticed that the Oscar nominations were released this week. In fact, about just over an hour ago, we were frantically typing out uh, stuff as Seth MacFarlane and Emma Stone revealed the Oscar nominations. Uh, so we thought we'd have a good old Jim Wang about those first. Lincoln led the way, I believe, with 12 nominations. Hooray! Life of Pi, <laughs> Life, hooray for our former editor, Steven Spielberg. Uh, Life of Pi got 11 nominations. Hooray! Hooray for our former Slate guest editor, Ang Lee, <laughs> uh, and uh, some other films got nominated as well. So what, uh, what, Les Mis and Les Silver Mis. Linings both had eight. Eight. Yes. Brilliant. Awesome. And there were snubs. People got snubbed. Oh, Downright snubbed all snubbed. over the place. Ben Affleck was snubbed. Catherine Bigelow was snubbed. Tom Hooper, guest of this podcast, was, was snubbed. snubbed. But at least he's on the podcast. That makes yes. up for it. And Ben Zeitlin, also guest on this podcast a few weeks back, was unsnubbed. He was, in fact... <laughs> Can you be unsnubbed? Well, he was, was he previously snubbed and the snubbing was retracted? How did this happen? Um, well, he wasn't snubbed, that's for sure. I see. So, um, what are you saying? If you're on the podcast, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I'm not quite sure. We want to tell people it's a good thing, Chris. It's a good I thing. I mean, for example... Don't we, tell we them have, about the curse. <laughs> we have actually genuinely already established that if you come in for an Empire web chat, you've got a much better chance of being voted People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. Because we've true. had the last two Sexiest Man Alive come in for a web chat. 
Um, now we've had a Best Director nominee in for the podcast, so yes. it's got to increase your chances. <laughs> it's got to increase your chances here at Hollywood. Uh, so what do we think of the, uh, the nominations? And let's, let's maybe bring the BAFTAs in as well for a wider conversation, because there were some uh, interesting ones. Michael Haneke, for example, mm. uh, for Best Director in both the BAFTAs and the uh, the Oscars, which was a, a, a big surprise to me. I, I didn't think that the Academy would necessarily go for that. Who knew Phil. that they mm. knew that Art House existed? It's a spectacular exactly. movie. Do you think this is as, as a result of the Michael Haneke parody account? <laughs> yeah, yeah. lol. It's a, yeah. yeah. a racist profile to the yes, point Yes, that's right. And they probably reminded the Academy about Naomi Watts, the blonde one from The Ring 2. <laughs> <laughs> as, he, as he describes her in his, in his Twitter feed. His, his, um, his parody. I think it's Twitter great feed. that, Michael, you know, you, I know you're going to say that, I'm always going to say this, but I think it's great that Michael Haneke is on, on, you know, right front and centre in the Oscars and that a foreign film is up there for best picture obviously I love this film and it's it's brilliantly directed I think it's going to be looked back upon as a bit of a masterpiece and also Emmanuel Riva mm-hmm. again I think she's the oldest best actress nominee she's amazing in this film you know I remember seeing her in um, Hiroshima Man and More the Alan Renee film which was 53 maybe more years ago and here she is getting you must have been quite young when you saw that <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it's in a previous life. So um, we have the, well, you think it's the oldest best actress yeah, nominee yeah. of all time. It is the oldest best actress Along with nominee. the youngest. Along with the youngest, mm-hmm. uh, Naomi Watts. Now, Quinvenjane <laughs> Wallace yes. uh, for Beast of Southern Wild. Previously eclipsing? Um, previously eclipsing, wasn't it Tatum O'Neill? I say Tatum O'Neill. Yeah, who I think was 11 or 10 or 11. People were riding furiously. But yeah, that, that, Anna Paquin was definitely 11, mm. but I don't think she was quite the youngest. She wasn't best actress either. No, but I'm, so, I'm, I'm talking about both categories. Here. Indeed, indeed anyway. you are, Helen. But it's great because uh, that film's fantastic. She's amazing in it. It's really raw, natural, completely unforced performance. And I thought, I thought, honestly, I thought her moment had, had gone. Because you often get a lot of front runners in the Oscar race. For yeah. example, Ben Affleck was being tipped as Lee Best Director Oscar shoe-in a couple mm. of months ago. Mm. And then, I don't know, things just, you just fade away. Maybe you don't go to the right I was parties. really disappointed, actually, that Affleck didn't get a nod. Imagine how he really feels, rude. Yes, I imagine his appointment pales in comparison to <laughs> Even now he's watching Daredevil, tears <laughs> streaming down, down his face. Oh. You look at the look at the Best Director nomination and you'd say that really David O. Russell is maybe, maybe good as he is, the lucky one to get on with Silver Linings Playbook, a film that there's obviously a lot of love for um, in other categories. But other than that, how are you going to fit Tom Hooper and... Um, Catherine Bigelow and Ben Affleck on that list. And maybe they think with Ben Affleck, his time is yet to come. Um, Bigelow recently, obviously, num- uh, won for Hurt Locker. Um, I wish she'd been on that list. I really do. I think she, Hurt Locker, I mean, Zero Dark Thirty, ahead of Silver Linings Playbook all day long for me. Yeah, my thing about Silver Linings Playbook, I think, is what's interesting is it's clearly beloved by the actors, which are, of course, the biggest voting block in the Oscars. I mean, it's the first film since, I think, Reds in about 1981, 82, to have nominees in all four acting categories, which is, you know, pretty impressive. And I, I, But I think, you know, it's, it's a good film. I liked it. It doesn't feel to me like a best picture, but, you know, on the sort of, on the form guide, if you will, it's got to be one of the three frontrunners, because quite frankly, there aren't nine nominees for best picture, really, because you're not going to win best picture statistically. You know, correlation isn't causation and all that. But generally speaking, the best picture winners for the past 30 odd years, more than 30 years, have all had a best editing nomination as well. And there's only five of those. So there's only really five films that are likely to win best picture. And only three of those also have a best director nomination, which is also, again, a really good kind of correlation for what wins. So the three front runners are Mm -hmm. Lincoln, Life of Pi and Silver Linings Playbook 
on that basis. And I still just don't feel like Silver Linings Playbook is a winner. That said, I didn't feel like Crash was going to win. And, you know, you can't underestimate how much the actor voters wield power because I think they, they have an awful lot of influence and they clearly love that movie clearly and that would explain Robert De Niro he's very good in it don't get me wrong but yeah. it's not really it's I quite did, a small part it's he's a small it, part yeah. he does it well but it's what he should be doing in every movie I think um, true I don't know if it's a standout necessarily do you see it winning best picture I don't but that would be that would be the upset wouldn't it Otherwise, I, you know, on on that basis, I think it's... I, I thought before today it was going to be Lincoln or Zero Dark Thirty, and I think it's going to be Lincoln or Life of Pi. You never know. It's good to see uh, Templeton Peck getting an Oscar nomination, though. Yes. How's about that? And former, you know, Empire Web Chatter. So again, guys... A former Empire Web Come Chatter. and visit. It's clearly good luck. Yeah. Bradley Cooper, in case you're wondering, in case people are going, Dirk Benedict got nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> How did that happen? What's going on? Um, yeah, very, very interesting. So you don't think Argo... Is a front runner then, because it's also one of the, the five nominees for film editing. No, using you, your. I mean, it, you know, I'll be I'll be honest. The correlation between director and best picture isn't quite as strong as the one between editing and best picture. So it's possible. I just don't think at this point it's likely. Is this pseudoscience you're implying? It there's, there's, it feels a touch of the old wives' tale. As here. I've said, correlation doesn't equal causation. You can, of course, win win best pictures without a best editing nomination, but nobody has since like 1980. I, ever. Can't, I can't work out whether you're being an, an you know old wives or whether you're going all properly moneyball on us. <laughs> you can see right through to the heart of this. But James, call Jim, me Nate Silver. I'm going to roll out a staff for you. It'll blow your mind. Since the Oscars began, yeah, no film that hasn't been nominated for a best picture Oscar has one best picture. That's astonishing, Chris. That is astonishing. So that means this, this year... Actually, I think this year Seven Psychopaths will come out of nowhere <laughs> <laughs> and take the gong. Well, since it's you know, up for Best British Film at the BAFTAs... It is, as you say. I I, that's nowhere. the biggest shock of the evening, surely, that the, the Oscars didn't didn't seize on that and yeah. include it in the lineup. Well, tr- truth be told, I, I really think Christopher Walken's fantastic in that film, and I think that you know, that's, a, that's, an os- that's a Best Supporting Actor Oscar-worthy performance, if you ask me, because they love quirky performances like that normally mm. don't they I mean that's that's the, that's the category where you can get away with giving Marissa Tomei an Oscar or Tommy Lee Jones yeah, for The yeah, Fugitive yeah. maybe I think Alan Arkin stole his spot because I love Alan Arkin everybody loves Alan Arkin but the only reason with respect that I think Alan Arkin is up for Argo it's because is because Alan everybody Arkin. loves Alan Arkin mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's a nice performance but it's not you know but he's won already, and Chris Walken hasn't won, and everyone well, every, loves Chris everybody in that category has won already. That's very true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, I think that's okay. also the uh, the first time that's happened. If I'm right in thinking, oh, I'd have. If to I'm not right in thinking, people. Oscarpedia Helen O'Hara is that true? I'm going to have to look it up. I'll be honest. Shocking. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go through some of the the, the major categories then. We've discussed. Um, have we, uh, you know, the best picture nominees are Amour, Argo, Django Unchained. Good to see that getting in there. Quentin Tarantino overlooked for best director. Uh, Limits Rob, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Zero Dark Thirty, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, no big blockbuster again this year. Sometimes they say they'll open up nine or ten films to let in the big movies. The furore over Dark Knight not getting nominated a couple of years ago led to this expansion. But this year, for example, none of the billion dollar blockbusters, and this is no by, by no means means that you should automatically qualify for an Oscar, but there's no sky fall for example and people thought that might actually be a dark horse so what do we think about that 
I'm okay with it. I think yeah, that's so a really quality list. And I think what's what I'm more pleased about is that they're kind of opening the doors to the likes of a more a foreign film, uh, Beast of the Southern Wild, a, an amazing film that just broke out of nowhere from a first-time director. That's an incredible achievement. Um, and Django Unchained, which is, you know, massively violent and, and very Tarantino. But, you know, it's good to see him get out of the screenplay ghetto and into the, the best picture category because I think, you know, sometimes in the past he's just been kind of relegated as, ooh, he's a bit too indie. We'll put him over there in screenplays where it's safe. And I think it's really, really good to see him in there. I'm actually really pretty happy with that list, I'll be honest. Um, I have to say, that, you know, one of the first comments on on our story, on every story, has of course been, oh, no Christopher Nolan. I, you know, really? I think, I, I don't really? think The Dark Knight Rises belongs in there over any of those films. Yeah, exactly right. yeah some people were expressing surprise, but I think, I, I don't know what was, what's going through their heads, honestly, The Hobbit wasn't on the list either. That, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I don't think Phil's <laughs> stifled <laughs> laughter might indicate that he doesn't think it's going to happen either. We shall see, maybe, maybe the second, third parts. Will. If it was in Finnish, best would that hedgehog. be right? <laughs> Yes, Sebastian for best CG yeah. hedgehog. There's Absolutely. an anti 48 FPS faction in Hollywood who are <laughs> trying to take the Hobbit down damn it well, of course, um, it is there in the technical categories we should say so the hedgehog yeah, may still have his day come so, on Sebastian I want, see, yeah, I want to see Sebastian's speech okay let's take a quick look at best actor which this threw up a couple of surprises for me um, uh, Denzel Washington for example for Flight I mm. think it's a fantastic performance mm. I wrote the piece uh, about it in our Oscar special a couple of months ago and I said I, you know, I think he should be nominated uh, but it's still a bit of a surprise I think this one didn't see people didn't see coming do you not think? I th- I felt like there was a bit of a Denzel. Well, every time he does anything with, with serious acting chops, i.e., that isn't Safe House, he's mentioned in Oscar terms, isn't he? Because he's got he's that. mentioned, but I think he, um, as far as I'm aware, his name had fallen out. Of no, and you notice there's not a lot. of Flight God, I think, was a best adapted screen, no best original screenplay as well. Yeah. But otherwise, no love, and probably fairly, I would say. Um, he's very good in it. Mm-hmm. It's a they love those kind of. Um, a recovering alcoholic type movies they and do, you know yeah. Lost Weekend and yep. Leaving Las Vegas and actually let's give uh, props to Elizabeth Mary Elizabeth Winstead for Smashed I think she's unlucky yeah. not to get a look in, in, in best actress category here um, Denzel's very good in it You're, I think he's well served by the script particularly to be honest which also won nominations so that's controversial <laughs> back to you uh, Chris <laughs> back, to, back to me in the studio uh, Bradley Cooper for Silver Linings Playbook uh, not as a huge surprise he was nominated for a BAFTA the day before and he's mm. been getting a lot of love but maybe a bit of a surprise for people who only know him through the Hangover movies and of course the A-Team yeah but he is he is good in it. Um, for me, it was a, a slightly surprising, simply in that I think the big kind of actory moments of that film are kind of um, Jennifer Lawrence's and not his character, even though he's the lead. Um, I, I was expecting to see her. I wasn't 100% sure we were going to see him. But yeah, well done to him. I think it, it could open a whole whole lot of doors for him. I agree with you on that. I think it's very much her, her movie. Mm. It feels like to me. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think this will allow him now to really branch out and do roles he's never done before. Yeah. You'll see him next, of course, in the Hangover Part 3. <laughs> um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, is that right? Is that uh, the newcomer, Daniel Day-Lewis, for Lincoln? If he turned up and read the phone book, he'd have been unedited, wouldn't he? But honestly, I, I am so 100% behind this, I can't even tell you. Um, he, I had to keep reminding myself during the film, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I did. I had to keep reminding myself that the guy I was watching on screen wasn't actually Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he was actually Daniel Day-Lewis. It wasn't even one of these things. You know, a lot of great performances, you go and you watch and, you, and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, that's a great performance. This is an incredible performance, I'm saying. I didn't think that once. I just thought he was Lincoln. 
um, which is possibly a sign of mental illness on <laughs> yeah. my part I don't know but I, I, I've never seen anything like it and I think even by his standards this is knocked out of the park and I will hereby promise to try my best to storm the stage at the Academy Awards don't, if he doesn't do win that. Well, no, I'm going to be in here in London, so I'll be honest, that will the risk make it, is yeah. slow. Tricky. It will yeah. be. And also, they've got a really good security over there, so well, I, if, I wouldn't if, try it. Well, if I perfect my you know, teleportation device bef- between then and now, they better watch out if they well, give it to anyone else. Crossed, Helen. Uh, do you think Liam Neeson's at home kicking himself a little bit? <laughs> what, for taking two? He, a, for taking two, <laughs> B, for passing on Lincoln. I know there were, there were extenuating circumstances uh, in terms of scheduling and whatnot, but he was Spielberg's first choice for this role, so, and he, he walked away from it. Was he definitely Spielberg's first choice? He back was ten talking, years ago, but it was it was ten years ago. I guess he just got. It was it was closer than ten years. Yeah, it was like oh. the last three or four. But I mean, ten years ago, Daniel Day Lewis wrote a rejection letter, which came out saying that he turned down the part. It was a different film then. I mean, it was still Lincoln, but it had a very different focus. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, rewritten a couple of times, but I guess both of them were kind of like vying ish for not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't do it. I won't do it either. I'd um, like to see the rules reversed. I'd love to see Leeson's Lincoln and yeah. Daniel Lewis him kicking, taking two. Yeah. <laughs> kicking Albanian thugs' butts in <laughs> taking two. I would be amazing. I have yeah. a very special set of skills. I can do shoemaking. <laughs> <laughs> I can bot. I can pretend to be you for six months. <laughs> it's funny, though, the two of them, Spielberg and Daniel Lewis, because they're kind of the poles apart in terms of Oscar success, aren't they? We were looking at the statistics mm-hmm. yesterday of Daniel Lewis has done like five movies. He's, he's one for three best. He's, he's like he's, he's like the Robin yeah. Van Persie. One uh, touch, one goal. After this, he's done uh, nineteen featured feature roles, um, mm. and had I think five Oscar nominations now, and two wins already. Hugh Jackman for his incredible turn in the title role of Les Miserables. Well, what do we think of uh, of that one? A bit of a bit of a surprise? Or? No, I think he carries that film on his shoulders. I think the problem is his that broad, it's, manly shoulders, his broad eh, Helen? manly dishy shoulders. You're, you're not in any way biased. No, but I, genuinely, it's it's the hardest role I think in that entire piece because he's the only one, along with Javert, he's the only one who's in it for the whole sort mm. of seventeen year span of the story, and he has to kind of do the heavy lifting and doesn't get the big moment that say picking a name out of thin air and Hathaway gets. So I think he, he does a lot of grunt work making that film 30 work. odd foot of it indeed <laughs> come on <laughs> thank you high five that when, when, you, so when you get a better. laugh you don't need a shout come on we've, we've already acknowledged this pretty good um, uh, I was proud of myself I think that's a naked here downstairs yeah <laughs> and the uh, and the last one um, yeah Whacking Phoenix in Lily Master you yeah. can't really argue with that yeah. to be honest I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the master myself but his performance was phenomenal so yeah phenomenal yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal, masterful. Okay, it wasn't a phenomena. He did it come was, out. Was very good. He did come out and say some negative things about campaigning and awards in general, didn't he? You're saying he should be to his nomination just for no. That. I'm saying it's you know good for the academy for kind of just getting past that and recognizing his performance, which was pretty. Yeah, but then on. wasn't there a movement on uh, on the internet, therefore obviously credible, saying that Anne Hathaway wouldn't be nominated simply because of that unfortunate paparazzi incident at the premiere? Seriously, oh, there was a conspiracy theory that that would that has somehow tarred her with the Lindsay Lohan brush. What happened? The painted. There was an unfortunate uh, uh, photo from the paparazzi. She was getting out of a car. One of those pictures oh. uh, at the premiere, and it became a bit uh, bit interesting. I felt awful for her. That was you know, it was quite upsetting. But she was. I, I she know, was, I was, good I was You scoured those photographs for hours. Yes, I did. I, I can see it. how upset yeah, you were. It was it was quite traumatic. But she um yeah she she dealt with it very well. She was interviewed actually the next day, and I thought she uh she she dealt with the whole thing very very you know. 
very well she did indeed and, and in fact in the interest of a fantastic segue let's talk about Best Supporting Actress next mm. uh, Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables um, I think she's going to win this one but that's, that's talking about other people Amy Adams in The Master it's the kind of role that could have been nothing and she made it into something really good um, so I think she deserves some serious amounts of credit for that I think it, you know she's not on screen very often at all but she she does great great work when, when she's there mm-hmm. uh, Helen Hunt uh, the sessions. I saw a poster quote in the tube that said her bravest performance yet, which is usually shorthand for she, she gets naked. Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's yeah. No, it's a good performance. If and it is performance. courageous because it's there's a film with no vanity whatsoever, and we talked about it last year. It's a very candid upfront about mm. sex, unembarrassed, What's an all type thing. Yeah. Mm. Well, ideally not. Um, <laughs> get that scene too. Um, but yeah, he's uh, she's solid in it. Very solid. Uh, John Hawkes, who is in the film, uh, is brilliant as well. He was he one is. of the mm. overlooked parties mm. for Best Actor. Very surprised about that actually, because mm-hmm. again, it's very much his. It's his. It's his movie. It's something that he you know threw his heart and soul yeah, into. Very much. So. Someone was suggesting on Twitter, um, given the fact that he's overlooked along with Marion Cotillard for Rust and Bone, mm. uh, does this mean that the Academy no longer loves um, able people playing disabled people. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, Sally Field for Lincoln. Not for the Amazing Spider-Man, but for Lincoln, apparently. No, that's just inexplicable. <laughs> I, Amazing, I even. <laughs> uh, and that Jackie didn't, Weaver. didn't to come on. No. No, it didn't. No. Uh, Jackie Weaver for Silver Lenny's Playbook. I, I, again, I thought I was a bit surprised by that one. Uh, yeah, she's good, but again, she's kind of barely in it. I wouldn't have thought there was, there was much there that really kind of grabbed you. So um, you're a bit Roy Walker in that one. She's yeah, good, she, but she's not right. Yeah, well, no, she she was she was right. She was good. She just, you know, it, it doesn't feel like an obvious um, nominee. I think uh, she's a previous nominee. She's been up there before, and maybe that's why she's back. I don't know. Okay. Let's move seamlessly into Best Actress. Uh, Emmanuel Riva, we've already discussed, Phil. Yes. An, an incredible, towering performance. An incredible, towering performance. Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook, uh, making this already, am I right in thinking her second nomination and she's like three three years old yes. what, yeah, something three, like three that and a half, something yeah. like that yeah. uh, which is which is great so Jessica Chastain for Zero Dark Thirty now I read a couple about a month ago she was a front runner and it's a very interesting performance because I don't think it's a very Oscar friendly mm. performance there are no histrionics I'm not going to ruin anything in the film but she's a very cold contained closed uh, down character yeah it's a very subtle performance I think mm. you know she's clearly feeling Huge emotions, uh, quite a few parts of the film, but they're they're absolutely locked up, and it's and it's a masterpiece of just trying to communicate a, a lot with very very little kind of movement at all. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting contrast because I think she's terrific, but but really locked in. Jennifer Lawrence, I think, is also terrific, but she's mm-hmm. got that especially that one big scene involving sports statistics, which doesn't sound like a big scene, but trust me, it is. <laughs> and um, and I think you know that's the clip. If if you're the Oscar producer, that's the clip you're going to play for her, yeah. and that's immediately much more kind of gripping than any single clip I think yeah. in Zero Dark Thirty so that might kind of you know the fact that she has that kind of scene may sway things uh, indeed and uh, Corvengine Wallace we've discussed mm. fantastic as Hush Puppy and Beast of Southern Wild and Naomi Watts which is pretty much the only nomination the impossible got am I correct in thinking that yeah. maybe yeah. maybe got a couple of technical ones if it didn't get a couple of technical I ones I haven't know seen that it did it I haven't seen those no. I mean it's it's tsunami sequence is astonishing I don't know wow what it needed to do but uh, uh, Naomi Watts for the impossible Tom Holland the young newcomer who plays her son in the movie and Hugh McGregor were overlooked but yeah no, she's fantastic I don't know whether she's going to win now uh, and let's move on to the best supporting actor Mm. Which, as you've seen, you know, there are you know, double dips in some t- cases, triple dips for people who've been nominated all wet many times before. Alan Arkin for Argo, 
Yeah, very good. But I, I didn't really, you know, John Goodman's equally good in that yeah. film. Yeah, in, in, in it, it, it really is the We Love Alan Arkin nomination. Mm, yeah, uh, I, with great sort of respect, I love yeah, you. Love him. Alan. Doesn't deserve to win for that. Yeah, uh, Christoph Waltz and Django Unchained, fantastic. But mm. there's a sense that he's maybe Hans Lander light in that one. I don't know. He feels a little bit kind of low key in that one for me. I, I, I'm not sure that he would have been the person in Django that I would have nominated personally. But uh, you know, he's he's great. You're going what Sam Jackson, Leonardo DiCaprio. I think Sam, Samuel Jackson's performance, I think, in that is is braver than anything else. I mean, that's. He, he plays the worst human being alive and <laughs> in many ways you know and, he, and he's just a, a character who to modernise and modern sensibilities is, is shocking and horrifying mm-hmm. and the complete antithesis of everything Samuel Jackson's done for his entire career um, so to, to do that I think is phenomenal I would have nominated him absolutely yeah I, mean, I, I think it's a bit of a shame that this isn't blessed with first timers to be honest remember a couple of years ago when Jonah Hill was nominated for Moneyball hmm. and you thought oh that's good you know they're, they're acknowledging that there are new actors who are, who've got new bags of tricks um, but we got Robert De Niro which is great in a way because the standard line of De Niro is that he stopped really giving great performances in 1995 with Heat and Casino and since then he's been coasting on fumes this clearly proves that that's not the case that whenever there a role demands it he can step up the plate Little Fockers for example Little Fockers indeed uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master yeah, yeah, I've got no arguments no, against that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones reprising his role as U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerard uh, in Steven Spielberg's sorry, Lincoln. No, not quite. No. No. Okay. Um, I haven't seen that to be honest. Steven, I'm, I'm just guessing. Um, so Tommy Lee Jones as Abraham's brother. No, he's a U.S. Uh, senator, congressman. He's a U.S. Senator. Thaddeus Stevens, I seem to remember his name. Thaddeus is. He's a he's a fiery radical who wants to immediately abolish all slavery, and what? Uh, who Lincoln has to to work with. I know, crazy idea, huh? Come on, that'll never work. Uh, um, Tommy Lee Jones and Lincoln. Very he good. is, yeah, he's terrific, and he deserves it for the f- for just one scene where somebody knocks on his door and he says, "It opens." <laughs> I'd give right. it to him for that sorted done alright uh, do you want to talk about anything else we've got best animated film Brave Franco Mini Paranorman The Pirates and Adventure of Scientists well done Peter Lord and Ardman uh, and Wrecked Ralph three stop motion films there it's quite impressive very very good point very very good point indeed um, what do we think about Brave Pixar's customary nomination I guess but I thought I quite liked Brave but I'm yeah. sensing there's not a lot of love for it yeah I liked table. it I liked it Liked yeah. it. I'd like Frank and Weenie or Pirates to win that. Yeah, out of the five, I think for me, the Pirates. You know, normally I don't. We don't. You know, we're not much one for the British. The British are attacking the Oscars, but uh, <laughs> in this case, I would like to see uh, Peter Lord and the Pirates get that one. It would be uh, best adapted screenplay: Argo, Based of Southern Wild, Life of Pi, Lincoln, and Silver Linings Playbook. This very early stage. Do you have a favourite? Um, I'm tempted to say Lincoln simply because I've read the book it's based on, and it's essentially based on half a chapter. And I think it's impressive that they got that much out of, you know, that book. Mm-hmm. Um, they've even taken, you know, quotes from Lincoln's life. Um, they, they've, they've done a really good job of kind of synthesising who he was into, into one screenplay, I think. Fantastic. Um, I, yeah, I'd give props to Life of Pi as well, because mm, we true. all said that oh, it was unadaptable. And look, they've adapted it, so have a prize. No such thing anymore. Uh, best original screenplay, Michael Haneke for Amor, Quentin Tarantino for Chango Unchained. Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola. Coppola's been Oscar nominated again. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom, Mark Bowl, mm. or as uh, Alice Eve pronounced it yesterday at the Baptist, Boal, uh, for Zero Dark Thirty. I think Mark Boal is, uh, is a show. Ba- he, he should insist on being Boal from mm. now on. And uh, John Gaten's for Flight, which everyone's saying is the big shock in a way John mm. John Gayton's I, actually I'm probably speaking out of turn here but I, he, I think his is the most personal of those this is something that he's experienced he's had to talk about 
promoting the film, the alcoholism and the, some of the things that Denzel's character gets up to, gets up to and struggles with in the film. So potentially there's an extra dimension to to that nomination. I know we weren't very positive about it earlier, but I mean it's 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 solid. Okay, so that's the Oscar roundup done. If you're outraged by the Oscars and, of course, the BAFTAs, which snubbed Ben Wheatley's sightseers and Barbarian Sound Studio, uh, you have a chance to anoint your favourites by voting in this year's Jameson Empire Awards, which will be held in March, March 24th, to be precise, at London's glamorous Grosvenor House Hotel. To vote, go to www.empireonline.com forward slash awards 2013. Okay, so some other things did happen, hopefully, in the world of film this week. Anything at all that we should know about? Lincoln, obviously, in everyone's thoughts with Spielberg, more Spielberg news, which is that his next putative next project, Robo Apocalypse, is now on hold. It is now uh, unputative. It's unputative. Um, it's now on indefinite hold. Now, that sounds ominous. That sounds more than just a, we need to get some more robot parts in. That sounds like we'll see it in two years' time, yeah. directed by Brett Ratner. It sounds, mm, yeah, alarmingly so. So, yes, possibly so. Uh, there's a worry about this one. I think the script didn't quite work. We had Drew Goddard in talking about Cabin in the Woods director, talking about his adaptation of the book about the robot apocalypse it's kind of like a weaponized version of short circuit if you want to put it that way um short chris hemsworth weaponized uh, uh, even more weaponized <laughs> hemsworth and hathaway were already kind of lined up for it but there were issues about maybe budget as well so this is back to the drawing board for the time being watch this space for more okay interesting so what you're saying is if you appear in the empire podcast your project will be put to turn around soon soon after i think um, we're reading too much into our sort of okay. juju power <laughs> it's all right we haven't had spielberg so it's oh not God. our fault it's not our fault i would just say i i'm possibly reading too much into this but given the problems that world war z has faced and given that that on paper is quite a similar structure to robo apocalypse i wonder if that's uh, part of the reason that they're they're really really working very hard on this script and making sure it's 100 percent right before they go into it because it seems to me it's it's a bit of a big risk uh, the, the the structure of the book isn't 100 percent cinematic and you've got to do a lot of work with it so i guess that's you do. part of it it's very global and very fragmented like world war z yeah and, and for my money the book isn't quite as good so that might necessitate a bit more work as well is there a sense that maybe Spielberg's not going to come back to it that maybe he feels that he's kind of done with these big temple movies he does have a, a tendency a very strong tendency to you know come back to things when he's, that he says he will this isn't the first time that one of his projects has languished in development for quite some time I would point you for example to Lincoln you know which he kind of mm-hmm. tinkered with and toyed with for about 10 years until being convinced that right now I've got it this is right let's go um, and it's an approach that clearly works he's never out of work he's never exactly no. casting about <laughs> you know you walk past with the dull kid yeah you rarely see him doing that I mean <laughs> I think he has a, approximately a bajillion scripts in his bottom drawer waiting for him to look at them. So I, th- I think we'll find... Yeah, it is really huge desk. So I think we'll find something uh, interesting for him to do in the near it, future. It could be good news for people that want to see another Tintin film. Not that he would direct it, but he might get his attention, potentially, with Indeed. Peter Jackson again. Or I'm sure somebody out there is going to start talking about Indy 5 pretty soon, but it won't be me. Just Indy did. 5? <laughs> uh, James, what do you got? Anything uh, happening in the world? Just some good news, really, for comic fans. Hooray! Um, indeed, which is always nice to hear. Uh, just that Why the Last Man, which, as I'm sure you know, has been sort of languishing for a while since DJ Caruso set it adrift, has, uh, has found a new director, which is, which is quite nice. A gentleman named Dan Trachtenberg, who has kind of directed nothing, really. Any um, relation to Michelle? I sincerely doubt it, Buffy fans. But uh, he... Um, he uh, he's, he's done a short, a portal short based on the game Portal, uh, which is actually quite nice. It's good. I'm not sure it's necessarily credentials to you know shoot a film based on Why the Last Man, which is going to be a tricky one. I would have mm. thought. I really like. I really love 
the, the Vertigo comic. I, I think we should probably se- explain what it is. Should we, should we, we explain what it is? I'm just assuming everyone knows. Um, it's set in a post-apocalyptic world, essentially, where all males, be they animal, vegetable or mineral, have uh, have been killed, essentially. And everyone's female, with the sole exception of Yorick, uh, a sort of an escape artist, and uh, his capuchin monkey, Ampersand. Uh, his little pet and they're the only males left uh, and there's lots of it there's, there's one-breasted Amazons going around trying to kill him he's searching for his sister there's an Israeli strike force trying to kidnap him and he hangs out with a agent and, and she's essentially his body gone in it and he, yeah he's, he's the only male it's, it's really nice it, it's very very touching actually towards the end it's quite bleak and it, it's quite sort of philosophical on the human condition which is sounds erotic is to me nice. yes it is all of those things not, yeah and as so the much. only man and his monkey in the world he um, I won't lie and it's not a spoiler he gets some <laughs> yeah. Although perhaps not as much as you'd expect. No, Alan Cumming could play Yorick, or indeed Ampersand. Yes, Cox, so, Brian Cox. <laughs> could also be. You're running out. Come on, I dare you to come up with three more. Why would you do that? Penis, Johnson, penis. someone, jo- Don Johnson. No, no. Anyway, anyway, moving on. <laughs> Very good. Um, there's a bit of a trend, isn't there? Because Fede Alvarez, the uh, the director of the Evil Dead remake, which looks, I have to say, huge Evil Dead fan. And I was fully prepared to pitchfork and torch this movie. <laughs> Looks fantastic. Mm. We shall see. Obviously, proof of the pudding is in the uh, the slice and the dismembering. But I, I'm really excited. And he made a, a sort of fan film. He made mm. a uh, aliens attacking or giant robots attacking uh, Montevideo in in Uruguay. Film called Panic Attack, and I put him on Sam Raimi's radar. So this is, and obviously Neil Blomkamp did much the same with his uh, Alive at Joe yeah, short yeah, film. Yeah. So it is very much, I think, the calling card now for for directors to do something. And it's good if anyone's anyone's seen the little portal short that he's done. I forget the actual title of it. I don't know if anyone remembers. Well, it's actually in our news story. So if you want to shortle, uh, shortle, yes, shortle. His uh, his uh, his mini short. I mean, it's very very well put together. Very very good. It uh, as I think a lot of people have mentioned, it, it doesn't feel a lot like the game. Is that a criticism or just a comparison? I don't really know. Hmm. Uh, but it's I, good in its own right. I like the tone of the game. I'd like somebody to do something with that. So would I. It has a, a nice little sense of humour. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, shall we have a lovely guest on now? Let's. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, if you saw The Girl on BBC Two over Christmas, you'll know it's the other movie about Alfred Hitchcock. This one stars Toby Jones, not Anthony Hopkins, as a master of suspense. And it details what seemed to be a rather sinister crush on Tippi Hedren, played by Sienna Miller, while shooting The Birds. And if you missed it, it's out soon on DVD and Blu-ray, so you have no Excuse. Either way, Jones is excellent as Hitch in the film and the British character actor so memorable in the likes of Barbarian Sound Studio, The Mist, The Hunger Games, and of course as Dobby the house elf in Harry Potter. Harry Potter! Uh, he popped in before Christmas to talk to Nick Dissemlian and Ali Plum. We're joined here today by Toby Jones, uh, the star of The Girl, uh, amongst about 200,000 other things. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Are we up to 200,000? I think about. IMDb says that, so I trust them. Uh, yes, trust everything that's in IMDb. <laughs> Too right. It's a really good policy. Yeah. Uh, it serves me well. Uh, but yes, uh, you play, I think I think he's called Hitchcock? Yes, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred, yes. yes. Yeah. Well, the big question for me that I want to ask is, how do you build up the courage to say yes when someone says to you, I'd like you to play Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps one of the greatest directors there's ever been one of the most distinctive and identifiable people there is and somebody who if you don't mind me saying doesn't look a lot like you I'm flattered that you think he doesn't <laughs> look a lot like me um, it's a very very good question and of course there have been several times when I've been offered parts where you you know that there is only one answer which is yes and then every part of you is rebelling against the fact that you've actually got to do that and in this case 
my dates I was finishing off uh, Snow White and the Huntsman and they didn't think it was going to work and then so the I just started this sort of research into the greatness of this person that you've just described and then they said oh the dates aren't going to work so uh, it was with, with some relief I went well I can't do anything about that it's a big Hollywood movie I took the books from my desk put them down on the, and then they changed the dates I took them <laughs> back up on the desk and start again but I think the the you know, I suppose when you're acting these people, it's a bit different from appreciating them, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I totally aware of his vast achievement in the cinema and how he's unavoidable for anyone who's interested in cinema. He's, you know, timeless insofar as I think about ten of his films. You could watch, uh, anyone would watch and still get into, and most of us could watch m most of his films and, and still get into them. But he is a person, remains... Uh, Certainly, what we cover in the film is is was news to me, and uh, so in that sense, you go well. This is breaking new ground. Uh, uh, the business of looking like him or not looking like him, of course, is not really a problem for me. That's more to I, I'm whoever anyone says I look like. I will be that person. You know. You mentioned reading books for preparation, but there's a physical transformation as well. Mm. You talk about that. Did you did you study footage of him, and and what was the kind of makeup process like? Yeah. I, what was interesting about the physical stuff is that nowadays with YouTube and with, with when you're playing when you're playing people who were filmed a lot and he was a very you know he was a good self publicist there was a lot of footage <laughs> of him you, you, you can you can watch them moving a lot you can read about what they did but nothing really prepares you as I say you know a biopic will be telling you stuff you don't know so that's that's in the mind of the the dramatist the person who's made the screenplay they will go this is what i think happened but no one really knows and for the actor i can do all the research i want but when it comes to a tuesday morning and they go well we need you to open the door we need you to pour wine into that glass we need you to uh, toast glasses we need you to sit down in a chair there's no footage of any of that stuff and you can give a lot of information about a character which is purely based on your instinct as to how that guy might have been but inevitably it's it's guessed it's not there's no it's not a matter of public record it's it's based on the physical stuff that i've, I've learned there is a great shot in the film uh, of you sitting on a chair and it's just <laughs> this curve. Yeah, yeah. Well, his silhouette, you see, that was the other thing why we had to do the fat suit and the prosthetics and everything because the, the strange, the, the brilliance of prosthetics nowadays is, I mean, they could just put my, put for Hitchcock's face on, on mine uh, and just say, you are Alfred Hitchcock, your face is Alfred But I think the, the question facing most filmmakers using prosthetics now is uh, to what extent you want to show the actor behind prosthetics the ratio you want you want to have and this is kind of an interesting philosophical question because <laughs> in a way you're going it's not it's toby jones playing alfred hitchcock it's you know yes he's he's trying to give you a good version of alfred hitchcock but it is uh it's it's not alfred hitchcock if you see what i mean and but we did feel that his silhouette was was crucial you know because he used it so much this you know the double chin the nose the mm. the, the the belly People got to know that, didn't they? I love uh, his description, the script's description of himself, which is two balloons stuck together. Yeah, uh, oh, uh, yes, two balloons stuck together. Yeah. Or, or a, a walrus, walrus in yes. a suit. <laughs> yes. It's the inevitable question. Um, you wait years for one hit film about Hitchcock to, to come along, and then we yeah. get two at the same time. Yes. How? At what point did you become aware of the Hopkins uh, one, and how do you feel about that? Uh, after I started work on it, 
it did feel a bit like deja vu because of the Truman Capote yes. because uh, there was a film being made like that and obviously it's the obvious joke to make but everyone went oh they heard you were making something so they decided <laughs> to make another one uh, uh, so I, how do I feel about it I feel it's not you know you know because you're dealing with people making films all the time every day there's a lot of noise in the world and it's very easy for people to get confused about what they're, they're about to watch and who's in it because there's just so much stuff being talked about all the time so that's a concern that's a concern to go no there are two things about two different periods the interesting thing is that those two periods are adjacent yeah you, i mean the, you can go and watch him at the peak of his success doing psycho then you can watch our show if you like uh which talks about the period immediately after that where i think in a way the success had intoxicated him and our our film is a bit about the product of that intoxication really during your your reading and research was there another period of hitchcock's life that you think would be a kind of fertile ground for well i i just think it'd be fascinating to watch the the very very beginning of his career uh, to watch him because cinema was so new and he was ahead of you can see early footage of him doing home movies and stuff like that and because he understood so well the grammar of cinema and was able to articulate it so brilliantly like sort of if you do this it has this effect on an audience I mean this is extraordinary mm. for a new art form and it would be brilliant to see something about his childhood where he was where a lot of these obsessions come from I think mm. uh, you know his father locking him up getting him locked up in a prison cell for no reason uh, other than to teach him a lesson uh, and then his work as a as a as a sketcher Mm. in the advertising industry mm. that stuff and uh, I think that would be a fascinating period to look at because he has that morbid well not morbid but he has a great fear of institutions and the police he, mm. he hates and false, that. Array, false imprisonment yeah, yeah all that kind of stuff mm. yeah I, I see what you mean but I, I think you could it almost feels like an unintentional sequel I mean that's I'm not trying to do no, it no, no 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 because there is a line that you, you know Kitchcock says in, in The Girl which is discussing the birds it's going to be the follow up yeah the new psycho yeah the new psycho so even he is piling the pressure on himself that it's psycho too only this time it's birds yeah Yeah. Um, you I mean you talk about prosthetics I mean obviously Captain America you're working with uh, Hugo Weaving yep who was Captain Prosthetics you have managed to be in the most amazing like huge tentpole films Mm. You've been in Snow White recently, obviously, as you mentioned, Captain America, Hunger Games, obviously, Harry Potter, even Doctor Who, obviously, mm. which isn't a movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, have you got your eye on Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I haven't got my eye on I hadn't got my eye on any of that stuff. I mean, I always feel really ignorant. Um, I remember when I got the part of Dobby and all of these, I didn't yet have kids, and all of these parents like ringing me up going... Uh, this is how I do him. How are you going to do him like that? Because you know, they've got so used to reading this character, and I didn't know what anyone was talking about because I had no idea what this character was. And I, and often a bit like the Doctor Who thing, uh, I'm only aware of the scale of the uh, important significance of the role, not importance, but significance of the role. In retrospect, when this mail starts coming, where people talking about, it was very interesting what you did in that scene. Did, were you aware of the, you know, I'm never aware of anything other than the page in front of me. In the 43rd comic. This- <laughs> exactly. I mean, you run into those people. I mean, and Star Wars, I'm sure, would be another case in point. 
one of your recent films, which probably not as many people have seen, shamefully, uh, as those titles, mm-hmm. is Barbarian Soundstudio, yeah. which I saw on the big screen and absolutely loved. Great. And I think it's a shame um, it wasn't a kind of a bigger thing because see, you have to see it in a, in a kind of surrounding. Certainly with a great sound system. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what was that experience like? It looks like it might have been a bit of a grim... <laughs> Kind of. Well, you're right to say it's a smaller. I mean, it's a smaller film, and as uh, you know, for the reasons we've already talked about about noise. I mean, just trying to get a a small, highly uh, rarefied picture like that seen by enough people is it's a big challenge. Even with a snappy title like Barbarian Sound Studio, <laughs> uh, I, I um, I'm really really proud of the film. Uh, when I read the script, I knew I wanted to do it almost by about page 20. I was going, oh, my God, I've got to do this, because it's the kind of film that I did grow up watching. Uh, it's certainly in my teenage years, you know, art house films. Not horror, but sort of art house films which are almost about themselves. Uh, I think it's heavily influenced by a lot of people, and, you know, he'd be very... Peter would be straight up about that, but obviously to be in a David Lynch film would be an ambition of mine and here you have a, a, a very Lynchian type horror which is sort of oblique and elliptical and I loved all of that you know all of the stuff that gets ironed out normally in big budget films here it's all kept in and you know I, th- I think Peter's concern was it was too commercial which no, <laughs> I, I thought was striking about the film but I think I'm really uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it I, I think um you're right, I think it does belong in cinemas, but hopefully the DVD people will see and maybe it'll be a sleeper hit, you know, that people... It's the sort of film that I would imagine gets rediscovered periodically. You know? They should package it with sound, a surround sound system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, it's an area of filmmaking which generally is not talked about, sound design and foley and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of area which, if it does a good job, no one talks about it or notices mm-hmm. it. Have you had a lot of feedback from people in posting work in those kind of jobs? Uh, no, I went to see a couple of people and, and weirdly I'd written a show for the stage which I performed with a Foley artist years and years ago in, in about uh, 2000. I wrote a show about being cut out of the Notting Hill film uh, and I got the footage of the scene that I was cut out of and I was going to do a show about this conspiracy theory as why I'd been cut out of Notting Hill. And I performed this conspiracy theory with a Foley artist on stage, and we told the story like that. Uh, so I knew a bit about Foley, but nowhere near uh, what you'd have to know. Although, in a strange way, I think, having talked to sound mixers about Barbarian, what they like about it is the kind of sound porn of it, the sort of hi-fi <laughs> porn of it, which is the sort of loving, lingering shots of amplifiers and, you know, reel-to-reel. Reel. I mean, Peter doesn't know how any of that stuff works. I think he just likes the look and feel of it. Uh, you're playing a sheriff, I gather. Yes, for the first time since I was eight. Ah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you when was the last time it was you yeah, wore a eight, sheriff's badge. Eight in the back garden uh, of my parents' house. That was the last time I gave my sheriff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you honed the performance sense or are you keeping to the original? I'm not sure. Uh, there are aspects of it I think that probably have been in decline from when I was eight. In eight, I think they've maybe... Try to equal the commitment of that performance. Is that a horse on a stick, horse's head? No horses. They ah. were cut uh, for my character. I don't know. I can actually ride a horse, but... Uh, no, no, no. But guns and... Uh, actually, it's not a 19th century sheriff. It's sort of 20s. So mm. it's more of sort of... 
mayoral type sheriff. This is for Serena, if I'm yep. pronouncing it correctly. Yep, yeah, that's right. Uh, which has Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. In. They only ever work together. Yeah, I was saying. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. no, they come as a pair. They do. Yeah. Now, what else have you got going on? Snow White was obviously a, a big hit, so I imagine there's, there must be a bit of chatter at the moment. Uh, I think there is chatter uh, about that. Uh, I'd, I, the chat hasn't reached me until uh, very recently, but that would be great just to work with those actors again. That was a lot of fun, apart from the prosthetics on that particular <laughs> job. Uh, but great people to work with. I'm doing two low-budget films. At the moment, I'm working on a great film. Uh, called Leave to Remain which is about asylum seekers which were filming in the east of London east end of London um, which is being shot by Bruce Goodison who has won a BAFTA and it's a film a passion project of him and we were actually working with kids who are seeking Leave to Remain even as we're filming filming it so that's a fascinating film and then a jump cut from that I go from Wales where we finished that to going to Boston to film um, a gangster film about con- the contemporary mafia, which is uh, a little independent film about well, all mafia films really are about how it, the old days when it used to be good when we really when we ran these streets and now it's all falling apart. Well, this film's pretty much about <laughs> it's about how the mafia has become a shadow of its former self in Boston. So, how's your Boston accent? That's a really tricky one, and. Uh, re- uh, it's tricky because there isn't much to learn, but you always forget what there is to learn. Mm. It's, it's, uh, and also, the, I suppose the other challenge with playing mafia is that it's, it's trying to get to the back to the source material when you don't live in in that area because you you sort of rely on movies, and that's always a disaster because you sort of want to, well, who are these people? What do they actually sound like? And uh, that's that's the biggest challenge I'm finding really. I wanted to ask one more question, actually. Just going back to Snow White, um, an amazing group of British actors mm. playing the dwarves. Who told the most stories? Uh, well, there was a sort of respect for uh, <laughs> talking the mafia here. Maybe we're talking about dwarf mafia. Um, I think there was a sort of level of respect for Bob and Ray. Always respect for Ray. <laughs> God's sake. Uh, you'd be mad not to have respect for Ray. Uh, so Ian, Bob and uh, Ray probably had... The greatest density of anecdotage, but uh, we uh, Nick Frost, it'd be hard to beat him on a on a on a contemporary anecdote. So we shared it all out. The main problem was density of Cockneys. Actually, so <laughs> I felt very much uh, inferior to all the Cockney element. Outnumbered by Cockneys. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. Thank you very much. Not Thanks, Toby. Cheers. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Okay, normally we'd include your questions and comments at this point, uh, but because it's the first show of 2013, we don't really have any. If you want to send anything in to us, find us on Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or we may not be able to see your question. You can Facebook us. We're Empire Magazine there, or you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. We expect lots of good questions and comments for next week. Uh, Okie dokie. Moving on to a second guest. Ooh. A second guest. Lord. I know. I, I can't believe it. There was a time when Tom Hooper was a director on Biker Grove, long after Anton Deck had departed, sadly. And EastEnders, Len along came HBO series John Adams, the underrated football flick The Damned United, and of course a small film called The King's Speech. And suddenly he's, you know, kind of a big deal. What do you do with such newfound clout? Well, you make an adaptation of legendary stage musical Les Miserables, of course with a particularly interesting approach the likes of as we've heard Hugh Jackman and Hathaway Russell Crowe Amanda Seyfried and Sasha Baron Cohen will be singing their songs live on set as you've heard Les Mis is now a BAFTA and Oscar frontrunner and Hooper came in last week to talk to Phil yes and Ali Plum 
Okay, so we're here with Tom Hooper, the director of both The King's Speech and, of course, I want to get this wrong now, Les Miserables. Perfect. Did that sound French enough? You were so uncannily French. Thank you. Um, Phil, I gather you had a very important question to ask first off. Yeah, my big question was, Tom, what did you get for Christmas? Uh, I got a very nice result at the US box office. Bingo! Which is better than any childhood gift. (laughs) We came out out number one at Christmas, and um, so uh, that was great. It couldn't be further away from the King's Speech in the sense that obviously the King's Speech was kind of a small theatre production. This is kind of the opposite. Yeah, and yet yeah, there I mean, are people that don't know the story. Well, I mean, the King's Speech was based on an unproduced play uh, about a kind of f- a man who was in the footnote of history books and our main source material, which is the diaries of Lionel Logue, as we had discovered them in an attic in North London. Literally, no one knew the story because they couldn't have seen the diaries. So, uh, and 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 this is about the most diametrically opposed because you know sixty million people have seen <laughs> know the story. So, it was it was a big difference. But it is it does amuse me that I've, I went from a man who couldn't speak to a, a group of actors who were not allowed to speak. They have to sing. So, I've obviously, got some issue with avoiding people speaking, which I need to deal with. <laughs> yeah, and you had you know in the King's Speech somebody talking or singing, rapping almost with with music going on behind them and you said no that's not going to happen either you're going to sing with maybe a piano in an earpiece I gather Um, yeah we did I mean a lot's been said about singing live but possibly something that was more you know even more unusual in terms of the history of the musical was that the accompaniment was live so that um, the actors could control the tempo of of what they sung and there was no conductor so they were they were in a kind of live duet with a with a pianist on an electronic piano they could hear the electronic piano, piano in a wireless miniature um, earpiece and that means that if as an actor you want to take a moment to let a new idea or emotion form in your eyes before you sing it you can uh, you know, when Anne Hathaway starts to cry and dream to dream she wants to slow down she can um, even something as simple as actors sitting for as long as they want until they're ready to begin you know, in, in in this environment, Eddie Redmayne can sit on that chair for a minute if he needs to to be in the zone to start. Whereas in a playback, it's like five, four, three, two, one. Eddie, no, you're you know you're a second late. We have to go again. And you know, so so it, it allowed it it allowed the actors to be much more in the moment and to and to generate that necessary illusion that the the, the characters are are creating the songs, ripping them out of the depths of their soul, rather than doing renditions of famous songs. And, you know, to, but I, I'm curious about the fact that when I went to watch the uh, the live show mm. in London, it clocks in at about three and a half, four hours, I think. No, it's actually, uh, unless you saw it, in the, the very first production of the Barbican was almost four hours, but now it's down to a lean two hours, 35. Ah, and maybe. we got the film down to two hours, 29, so we got it even shorter. Than I'm show. thinking of Interval for three hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, when you were shooting it, were you going, that's that's great you, you really pulled something out there that's that's really honest and true and vivid but I need a second off this or three seconds because the edit's going to be I, I often wondered whether I should have thought that at the time of shooting because I, I tended to think because it was I, I for, for my taste the show you know is, is sung um, a little bit too quickly uh, when I see it and I, and I think it's I, I do wonder whether there's a sense in which you know you know, everyone wants to get down the pub, but if you if you if you, if you rattle through it a little bit faster, then and you're all off a little earlier. No, I don't, I don't mean to be unkind, but the, but but it is done with tremendous pace and energy on on the West End stage, and but but sometimes you miss some of the you know the, some of the nuances of the lyrics, and, and sometimes you can get a bit confused with the plot if you don't know the show because of the speed of it. And I wanted to take it at a at a, at a gentler pace, but that did create a problem. Basically, if you kind of go, okay. 
I'm taking the musical, it currently runs 2 hours 35, I'm going to sing it slower and I'm going to add new material, then you, you're kind of heading for three hours and, and, and the challenge to wrangle it back to under two and a half was quite, uh, was quite tricky. I noticed something when I went to the screening of, of, of Les Mes that, that it's almost like there's a bit of it that it is kind of like a theatrical production in the way that the audience responds to it because yeah. when Anne Hathaway does her has her moment um, one of her moments th- there's spontaneous applause and I haven't really seen that in too many I don't know about you but I very I can't really think of any other screenings where that's happened twice yeah I mean I remember the King's Speech occasionally people would clap when Bertie had done his speech at the end and I remember going oh my god I've never seen people clap in cinema whereas this like you know in the London premiere people applauded you know 12 times during the film and in the New York premiere 16 times during the film mm. and in New-, at New York they started clapping the final scene on the on the kind of barricade they started clapping at the beginning of the scene clapped through the entire last two minutes and and and, 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 and Anne and I were coming out and I said to Anne you do realise this is never going to get better in our entire lives like, this, <laughs> this is it this is the moment and let's just remember it and, and it was kind of uh, bittersweet to both think we'd, we'd had that response but also to realise that we probably could never get, <laughs> expect that response in another movie ever again. I'm curious about um, when Sacha Baron Cohen mm. was incapacitated somewhat by mm. his uh, throat and vocal cords how did it feel to take or be forced to in a way to take a week off because he was unwell? Yeah it was, it was funny because the thing that when I when I was advocating my live singing passion people kept saying yeah but what if someone gets a sore throat and then uh, ironically at the very end of the shoot with only three days to go Sasha Baron Cohen ends up with such a sore you know such a bad I think he had laryngitis so we basically we had and we were doing Master of the House last and and so we had to shut down and um and I remember Sasha saying well why don't I just you know mime and then you can put the singing on later I was like Sasha have you come this entire way to sing live I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that so um yeah uh it, it was actually kind of quite relaxing to kind of go well you know let's just like chill out for a few days and then come back to it and uh, and, and it gave me a little bit of breathing room it's very funny because I went to see him he was staying in a house in Hampstead and we, we'd go and keep working on the kind of comedic structure of Master the House but he would only communicate by writing stuff down on pads you can imagine the kind of comedy value that Sasha can, can get out of just write, communicating through writing <laughs> refusing to speak I mean it, you know I was in hysterics most of the time well I can see that seems very complicated physical comedy a lot of mm-hmm. pictionary I suppose between you two suddenly going well how about we do this yeah, yeah, it yeah, comes no, through I this know, pocket and I know. it was, it was um, hilarious I'd rather miss it when he, when he went back to speaking I'd rather miss the, 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 the mute Sasha <laughs> his assistant said his assistant Rhonda said you know it's like, like it's the quietest Sash Barricades ever, ever been, you can imagine. It's true you had a pickpocket consultant. We did. We had a, um, a pickpocket magician called James who taught Sasha and Helena how to, um, how, how to steal. Uh, and they, they were pretty good. Like, by the end, I would be like, oh, fuck, where's my mobile phone? Where's my wallet? And, you know, Sasha and Helena had basically stripped me of everything I owned. Every, you know, just as, as a sort of, like, a, as, a, as a morning discipline, they would rob me. You got them all back, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it was quite, it was quite interesting learning a few of the learning a few of the tricks. You know, ba- basically, if someone's being very tactile, that that normally a sign that they that um, you're going to lose something. If you're a pickpocket magician, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than your mum giving you a hug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've read in a lot of interviews that people have asked you, you know, what was it about Lame Is that made it the first thing you wanted to do after mm. King's Speech. I'm curious about the things that were brought to your table. The people knocked on your door and said, "Hey, look, we'd like you to do." I think Iron Man Three was mentioned, but a yeah, lot I mean, of different uh, things. Uh, look, you know, it's funny, but as I approached the Academy Awards, 
it was as if you know the feeling was that if you were to win the Oscar you'd be given the key to the secret door and you'd go through the secret door and there on the table would be all the great unmade scripts and they would be yours <laughs> and that's the reward you, know, you win the Oscar there is no key there is no secret door there is no table with the great unmade scripts it's kind of what it was a week before it's, it's just you also now have an Oscar but the, but the projects are the projects and the difficulty of finding great material remains a difficulty whether you win an Oscar or not and and so I'd kind of prepared myself for the come down that the Oscar wouldn't suddenly make finding great material easier uh, it would make it would make securing it where I to find it easier but um, so I so I'd so so the true the true answer is I you know I read lot I read lots of interviews where I the people ascribe to me the fact that I was offered everything or and, and I kind of look back and I don't particularly <laughs> remember having this amazing choice of amazing projects um um you know there 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 are a few that came my way but but I but I actually but I but I actually started thinking about Les Miserables in the August before um uh, the King's Speech was released and I'd been reading the book during the six months of the promotion I've been carrying this battered copy round and and I and because I because I kind of felt the worst thing to do would be to have that success and then kind of get paralyzed about how to follow it up and have the kind of difficult second mm -hmm. second album scenario and um so i try i wanted to try to work out how to you know i wanted to get back on the horse straight away and just get back into directing and not and not build this thing up in my head as this impossible you know how will i ever make something you know this successful again and, and so i think it was healthy that i did that so i so the, the short answer is i didn't i didn't spend a lot of time you know kind of surveying every possible option I, I narrowed in on a couple of things fairly quickly what are you reading at the moment Tom uh, absolutely nothing <laughs> um, but this needs to change because I'm definitely don't know what I'm doing next <laughs> <laughs> do you have a do you have an, a kind of an inkling of where you'd like to go because you've done a lot of period period work going back to Elizabeth John Adams mm. the Dam United was a different kind of period proposition period, yeah. but very much a period piece as well yeah. um, that's obviously something that has a great appeal you studied English at university so do you still take inspiration from the past or are you looking it's, for something it's difficult it's, it's some, I mean I think I'm quite interested in the way we relate to the iconic in our culture I and mean, if you look at the choices um I mean, with Les Miserables, the you know the story itself is iconic. With the King's Speech, you're dealing with, you know, King George the Sixth, the Second World War. With you know, Damned United, it's Brian Clough. With Longford, it's Lord Longford's relationship with Myra Hindley. Uh, John Adams, is, is, mm. you know, so so is the American Revolution, and 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 you know, it's it's difficult making contemporary movies about the iconic because you're 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 still in that negotiation. I mean, if you were to make a film about Obama right now, really this it wouldn't be smart to make it now you need to know where the story's going to end in in four years time and um so i so so i i think quite often i enjoy having some perspective on a on, on a narrative which tends to take you to non-contemporary subjects but um uh you know i don't know maybe maybe science fiction would be interesting to go to go the other way and to go and to, and to go and to, and to build a world that you know that to use all the rigor of world building which you kind of do with a period drama where you have to create a world that's not currently there and and um but i but i i don't know this is a short answer i mean I, I definitely like to find a contemporary story i mean i love doing prime suspect with helen mirren which was you know a contemporary thriller um uh so i'd i i i'd like to do something different again you know just but whether whether it can be as different as les miserables was from the king's speech i don't know <laughs> we have to be an animation movie there you go, Pixar. I don't think they take requests. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I was curious about what musicals inspire you. Were you on set looking to Touchstones? Were you rewatching, perhaps not West Side Story, but other musicals that really inspired you? Uh, I, I did actually kind of go to school and rewatch some of the great musicals. Uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg yes. was a really, you know, key bit of inspiration for me. I mean, it's one of the. There are only three sung through musicals that I'm aware of. Tommy, Evita, and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and 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 I like the Umbrellas of Cherbourg because because it, you have this, you know, it's a, it's a through sung musical, and it starts with a kind of garage mechanic going into a changing room and getting changed for a date, and there's there's something so kind of utterly banal about the setting and the, and the disjunct between the singing form and the kind of ordinary realism of the of the setting. I thought was 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 inc I found it incredibly exciting and and sort of energizing, and and it and it made me realise that. The very thing that might frighten you about musicals, which is the fact that the singing doesn't seem to fit, creates a very interesting tension at the heart of what you're doing, and, and, mm. and so I found that inspiring. And then, you know, I mean, I, I, I grew up lo loving Alan Parker. I mean, right back to Bugsy, you know, Bugsy Malone was one of the great movies mm. when I watched the kid, and I rewatched things like Fame, which is so skill mm. very skillfully made when you look back at it. Um, and and then I, you know, Norman Jewison's Fiddle on the Roof. You know, I actually never seen, and Sasha recommended I see it, and I thought it was brilliantly good. Um, I rewatched Sound of Music, uh, which which I st you know, stood up very well. So I, I, I did, I did do that, but it was interesting because no, there wasn't really anything there that was like what I was trying to do. I mean, mm. So it was helpful, but but um, the the live singing through sung form uh, has a it's almost like a different genre from the. From the traditional movie musical. I mean, sound of music. You'll have you know, there's a, there's a period I check my DVD counter. Twenty eight minutes between songs. So I mean, it really is a dialogue movie interspersed with songs. Mm. And what we're trying to do with Les Miserables was create a world where people communicate through song, and that singing is the medium. And it's cause it's a quite a different thing. Phil, you and I were discussing how difficult we thought it must have been to have done the scene where. Anne Hathaway's character has her hair cut off mm. whilst she's singing. I think that's correct. Uh, uh, she's not singing in that scene because we she she does we shot we shot we shot her having her hair cut all in one take with three cameras um uh, ironically she was actually listening to her iPod uh, <laughs> which people don't know really listening to a sad song on her iPod when when, uh, when, when we were shooting that. I'd love um, to know that song yeah I'd love to know that song as well she still hasn't revealed it to me does the use of the word lay Miz but Miz with a Z wind you up as much as it does me um I've made my peace with it a long time ago and I suggest you do as well because life's too short <laughs> you're absolutely right Anyway. Good luck in, uh, in awards season and thank you thank for you. taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, thank Tom. You. Much appreciated. So that was Tom Hooper there. Incidentally, I think Tom Hooper is the spit of a young James Cameron. I agree. You agree? Mm. I told him this once in the red carpet at BAFTA. He was not impressed. <laughs> huh. I know. It's a bit, I think that's a compliment. You look like James Cameron. Yeah, you're going to go on and make, you know, billion dollar movies. Yeah. But not sure Marianne. that necessarily follows. Uh, but Marius, unless, he's, unless he's had a best editing nominee, in which case it might. <laughs> Marry a string of attractive ladies? A bevy of beauties, in fact. Oh, good lord. Probably should have said that to him. Probably. Um, anyway, uh, any other Hollywood looky likeies? For example, that bloke from Prometheus looks a bit like that bloke from The Dark Knight Rises. Helen Hunt and, and Lily Sabisky. Yes. Yo, that's true. They could be like mother and daughter. Evil twins. Javier yes. Bardem and. Everybody. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> no, no, the Jeffrey other D. Morgan. Jeffrey D. Morgan. Jeffrey D. Morgan. If, oh, Phil's got one. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and. Mary Elizabeth Parker. No, Soundy namey likey is not a thing. <laughs> it's Mary Louise Parker anyway. I just no, the, oh, I can't Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. You've derailed this, Helen. If you know who I'm talking about, write in. 
because I don't. <laughs> Phil, Phil has basically just said a name. Then he made a gesture with his hands and expects us to know who that... Who is this? Oh, is it Emmanuel, my senses for me. Mary Elizabeth Winstead oh, and Emmanuel Reaver. <laughs> no, it's not Emmanuel Reaver. Stephen Lang and Stephen Daldry. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. If Stephen Daldry went to the gym for, like, three years consecutively, he'd look like Stephen Lang. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, if you have any other Hollywood looky-likeys, not soundy-likeys, please do send them into the usual address, the ones I've outlined already, and we'll maybe discuss the best ones next week. And now, as is tradition, we're going to review the week's releases, clogging up your local cinematic emporium, and Les Mis, probably the place to start, isn't it? Early work was masterpiece, then the backlash started, and then the backlash, the backlash started. Usually the truth is somewhere in between. What is it like? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. I think it's a, it's a very good film. I think that the a plan to sing the songs live on stage pays off in space. Great performances, generally speaking, both in terms of the acting and for the most part in terms of the singing. And uh, yeah, I think it doesn't 100% connect quite as much as you want it to. I think if you have if you know the stage show, if you've seen it, there are some bits that feel peculiarly flat. But generally speaking, it's, it's lovely to see it kind of opened up to this huge canvas that the screen can provide. I mean, the opening shot's terrific. You've got sort of giant galleons kind of being dragged into dry dock by prisoners in Toulon. And, uh, and that's... You know, that's exactly what you, what you want from this kind of film. You want the, the scale of the film to match the kind of epic feel of the show um, and get it out of its kind of, you know, stage environment. I think the weaker parts of the film for me are where they kind of do go back into a sound stage and they don't even do a brilliant job of making it not feel like a sound stage. I mean, films can do that. You know, there are films that are shot on stages, but they feel very expansive and very open. And this this didn't quite have that scale. So that, that was a bit of a problem for me. And James, strangely enough... You're a massive Les Mis fan. I am, aren't yes. You? It is. I, I, the fact that it is my musical is probably no more surprising than the fact that I have a favourite musical. But uh, yes, I love it. I've seen it about 12 times, uh, seriously. Excuse me, what? I have seen it about 12 times. I absolutely love it. You've seen um, the stage musical 12 times? Yeah. Well, not, I'm not saying it's, 12, it's like, about 10 or 12 or something. When was the last time you saw it? The last time I saw it was three years ago. And who was uh, Fangeon in uh, that? Oh, I have no idea what his name is. Jeffrey Singer. <laughs> I've, I've no idea. It could, it could have been Mary Elizabeth Winstead for all I know. I really, <laughs> or, um, really have no um, idea. Oh if, oh, if it wasn't Mary Elizabeth Winstead, do you write in and oh, tell us the other one, one that looks exactly like it? Yes, it could have been her as well. Um, yeah, no, I, I do love it. And I really, 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 really looked forward to this film. And I did enjoy it. It's not the definitive lame is. It's like buying a CD and then going to see the gigs. You know what I mean? That's what the two experiences, that's how they differentiate. And I'm not sure it's 100% the fault of Tom Hooper or indeed the people performing in the film. I think part of it is the fault of cinemas. I saw it at the uh, Odeon Leicester Square. And frankly, it just wasn't loud enough. It didn't fill the room. The thing about when you see it as a musical in a theatre, the sound sort of just consumes the whole space. The acoustics are very precise. You know, it, it rouses you, it stirs your spirit and all that stuff. You just don't get that. Even from a THX, you know, enabled cinema, it's just mm. it's just not loud enough. And I think that's a real problem for a film like this. Mm. Okay, uh, but what about the, um, you know, the, the technique that Tom Hooper has implemented here, which is, it's been used for the first time in a long time. It's, it's been used before, this idea of singing live on set yeah. To, yeah. to provide emotion for the actors. Well, does that work? I think it generally speaking really really did um, I mean there's a I think you lose you know some of the perfect notes like let's face it you know Hugh Jackman is a terrific singer uh, has a great voice um, but even he I mean a, a notoriously difficult song like Bring Him Home there are bits where he just stumbles oh yeah um, but at the same time it gets across the emotion of the song anyway so what you lose in kind of 
perfect musicality you maybe gain in performance and I think Russell Crowe has a really difficult job in this because Javert I always think has the, the second most powerful voice on the stage when you see it theatrically uh, and he's a little little I mean I'm not not you know criticising him but he's a little out of his depth in this uh, Javert and he does sort of resort a little bit to uh, you know rock and roll gruntings I played him for Giving it a go. Without a doubt. And his performance is great. And from an emotional point of view, again, he's, he's, he's very good in it. Anne Hathaway, obviously, is the one thing is the one thing that people are talking about from this. She is the best thing in it, in many ways. Yes. What do people think? Great. Yes. Can I just say, uh, what about the songs? Because I don't know any songs from this, apart from mm. that Susan Boyle song. I'd, yes. never seen, I'd never seen a musical on stage. I really like the songs, virtually all of them. I thought they were ter- really cool. Okay. Especially the... Um, chairs and not empty chairs and empty tables. The one before that, the, the red and red the white, and the, black. the red and the black, <laughs> the red and the white. <laughs> Just pull out primary colours. Some um, colours: the mauve and the misty buff. Yes. Yeah, that that's quite good. enough for lamies. Let's move on now four to stars. Gangster Squad. And yes, even though it may not sound like it, we gave it four. Um, yeah, let's move on now to a film that's already out. Came out on Thursday. Yeah, uh, Gangster Squad. Ruben, Zombieland, and 30 Laughs or Less, Fleischer's 1940s set flick about a team of super cops, including Josh Brolin and Ryan Gosling, who are brought together to... mm, Sorry. Who are brought together to take down Sean Penn's Mickey Cohen by any means necessary. Uh, what are our thoughts on this, James? You know, I I enjoyed it. It's it's one of those films where it, it wasn't what I it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be, and it isn't the Untouchables, and it isn't LA Confidential. And I think no, that's, no, that's, that's, that's very. I think that's it's <laughs> un, almost unfair. But you come out of that film, and those are the main thoughts on your mind. I think that said, you know, there's there's fun to be had with it. Sean Penn has been has been said quite a lot. Is is really really good. Just chewing up scenery uh, as Mickey Cohen, the gangster. I think he's he's, he's a nice name. Josh Brolin doesn't have an awful lot to work with in terms of. of of, you know, decent dialogue, quite frankly, but he scowls a lot and, you know, he yeah. does that very well. I think the dialogue in this film is it's, spectacularly awful. It's incredibly on the nose. Incredibly <laughs> it, on the nose. The, the amazing thing about Gangster Squad is it is, in many, many ways, stupendously terrible. <laughs> I mean, really, really awful. Just horrible script, really obvious, really on the nose. None of the class or lan or style or sleekness of Ellie Confidential or The Untouchables, which it is so clearly wanting to be. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I found myself quite enjoying it. But it's, it's, it's likeable. It. it has a it's certain likeable appeal. You know, I don't want to use the word romp, and I actually won't, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's fun. I think I think you do enjoy it. But yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't feel like a, a serious film. It feels, if anything, I mean, it's not based on a comic. In fact, it's not even based in reality. It's entirely fictional. I think the only thing even... Mickey Cohen was a man, and he has boxed. <laughs> These are probably the only facts that resemble reality in the film. Yeah, pretty much. Um, that said, it, fe- it feels like it's a comic adaptation. Do you know what? It feels like, it feels like a cell-by-cell adapt adaptation and the dialogue feels lifted almost out of bubbles on a page that which isn't a great thing since it isn't it's is, not. is the likability then down to you know the likes of Emma Stone who is famously unlikable oh my word good lord that's no, she like, she's, she's it's fantastic. opposite day yeah it's a decent cast that are largely wasted Michael Peña Giovanna Ribisi <laughs> I'm not I'm not selling this uh, Michael <laughs> Peña uh, Robert Patrick Giovanna Ribisi and uh, Anthony Mackie who come in and they pretty much have one scene each and they get mm. to do something and, and Nick Nolde comes in and goes <laughs> for a little bit and uh, <laughs> so that's quite fun but uh, otherwise I'd say decent but maybe it's good I mean it's, it, it is, it's good it's not great it's one of these things where it just should have been a hell of a lot better than it is yeah. I mean it's good but it, you know it's not what it could have been after Zombieland we thought that maybe yeah. Ruben Fleischer might have been the next big thing in a minute and, yet, and yet 30 minutes or less and Gangster Squad later mm-hmm. it's beginning to look that maybe Zombieland was a flip. 
maybe who knows uh, anyway three stars recommendation go and see it at the cinemas everybody uh, also out this week is what Richard did uh, the Irish movie that brought Jack Rayner to Michael Bay's attention if you don't know who Jack Rayner is he was announced this week as the, the new lead of Transformers 4 and he's Irish yeah so presumably he uh, someone tweeted me the other day he's playing Meg Otron <laughs> I'm sure he will be uh, just just a word you shouldn't hold that against him it's not his fault you know he's, <laughs> he's a young actor he has to take these jobs <laughs> yeah, um, the work. but honestly he's, he's actually terrific in this it's a really uh, very very low key drama about the consequences of one bad night basically and just really fantastic very well acted very naturalistic performances from a, a largely young and largely untried cast and uh, definitely worth a look we give it four stars fantastic so that's a big old recommendation uh, also out this week we have Jiro Dreams of Sushi we gave that four stars Midnight Sun we gave three Underground uh, gets four stars and uh, there's the one star comedy May I Kill You which stars Kevin Bishop and there's a red flag if ever there was one and that's it for this week's Emperor Podcast first of the year hooray amazing anyway join us next week for more film related fun We'll be talking about Django Unchained, which is Hooray. good. The Sessions and the horror anthology, the fan footage horror anthology, VHS. And we'll be joined by none other than the director of Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow. Ooh. I know, amazing. Until then, <laughs> it's all a scary film. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Goodbye. Off to see Miz again. Yeah. It's just down the road, isn't it, really? It is. Uh, and it's goodbye from me. See you next week. Oh, you'll hear the peeps. Right.